Hey listeners, it's time for episode 9 of Not My Forte with Joel and Ian. We are nearing the end of our first season where I am feeding my co-host Ian the entire Beatles catalog, which he's never heard before, album by album, and seeing what happens. This week we set our sights on the Beatles' massive self-titled 10th album, more commonly known as the White Album, and like the White Album, we needed more than one episode to get the whole thing done. On the day, this discussion went for over three and a half hours, and we are breaking this conversation up into two glorious full-length episodes. This part one episode is going to cover almost the entire first disc of the double album, and then part two will cover the rest of it, as well as the tracks on Yellow Submarine that we haven't talk through yet forgive me but this episode ends on a bit of a cliffhanger you'll see what i mean when you get there and i promise you that episode 10 will not disappoint as a conclusion to this one as always follow us on facebook at not my forte with joel and ian and on instagram at not my forte podcast now prepare yourselves for the white album We are sitting on the precipice hmm. of the end of this week where Ian has listened to the White Album. I have and thoroughly a, <laughs> listened to it, actually. And a little bit of Yellow Submarine. Just a little. <laughs> and, uh, and here we are. And uh, I don't think I've been as excited to hear your, uh, your thoughts on anything of any of these things. Maybe Sgt. Pepper's. But this one, because it is such a, well. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant is the yeah. way I felt afterwards. Yeah. Not just in Beatles music, but in so many other areas that yeah. transcended transcended the Beatles and just seemed to yeah. flow through the music presented right. on this album. So uh, let's jump right into it. If you had to describe it in a sentence, how does it hit you, not knowing anything about it? If I were to describe it in a sentence, it uh, disjointed would probably be the first word that comes to mind, Yeah, actually. Um, it doesn't feel like a cohesive piece of, piece of art, yeah. essentially. Uh, there's some really amazing moments, uh, amazing songs on yeah. it. And some of the most interesting songs that made me look further into what the origins of the songs might be or what, yeah. they, what they might be talking about. Um, but then there's also moments that actually, um, well, I'll just say it. There's a song There's a song on here that actually bumps Dizzy Miss Lizzie off my list okay. of the worst Beatles song. Okay. And this one takes its place. I love and it. It's, and it's not the one that probably most people would say is the worst song on the album. So, oh, wow. All right. Don't tell me which one it is yet, yeah. but what do you think is the one that most people would say? Uh, I think most people would say that Wild Honey Pie, mm -hmm. I think is what most people would say is the worst song. Right. That's and also not my worst song, so I'm... Okay, good. We're tracking so we're far. We're tracking so far. Okay. Um, so we're going to get that out of the way. Nice. But before I give any other takeaways, I, I actually had a few questions before we jump in. Because I'm pretty sure maybe other listeners might have yeah, yeah. similar questions. So the first question I have for you is 
is it called the white album simply because the cover is white um and there was no title assigned to it or was the title assigned to it the white album it is called the beatles okay yeah it's just an eponymous album oh i didn't know self-titled that. yeah okay yeah. so it's a self so it's technically we should be calling it the self-titled record yeah cool it's, but it's just been known as the white album yeah mm-hmm. okay so second question is why are there so many songs on this album like is there a reason behind that it feels like they wanted to do something different and they wanted to do something that wasn't sergeant peppers it's funny all my like reading and research about it, i didn't really uncover any re specific reason why they just ended up with so much and they were like it almost feels like they they thought to themselves we're the beatles we can put out a giant double album, something we've never done before, and what and people will buy it. And it is their top selling album of all time. Oh, it, it is, is. twenty four oh. times platinum. Wow, I th- I thought uh, so. Sergeant Pepper's is not number one. Not anymore. Wow. Okay. No, at the time it was. Okay. I I, th- I believe as of now this is their highest actual as far as actual record sales that's amazing okay so that leads me to my next question because i we've had a conversation about this album in advance just a little bit yeah um where i believe you've referred to some of the songs are like the bottom of the barrel yeah. of their catalog i recall john saying something similar when yeah. we had him on for sergeant peppers and i think frankie actually said something similar too yeah and i would categorize the three of you as true true fans of the beatles yeah um but i have seemed to come into contact with people that aren't as i for lack of a better term devoutly following the beatles catalog and are that degree of fan but more of a casual listener Mm -hmm. familiar with their music but not like this is the greatest band of all time yeah and it seems like the more casual listener regards this as their best work and so yeah do you have any thoughts on why that would be? Yeah. I would say I'm trying to think of an example cuz there are some there are some other things like this. So for example, I would say let's look at the band U2. Some people might point at um all the things you can't leave behind as their their biggest album cuz that was beautiful day. It was like probably their biggest commercial success. Some other people might view Joshua Tree as their number one album. It was kind of the most influential. It was also a huge success. And then some other people would look at War maybe hmm. as their mo- their biggest, you know, their most important work. For the Beatles, this was kind of like their Joshua Tree in a way. Maybe that's not a great example, but this this is the most uh, I would say quintessential Beatles album for how most people understand the Beatles. I, I think. understand. Okay. I think for people living in the '60s. Sergeant Pepper's was the thing. It, that was the, maybe the most kind of revolutionary. Pardon the the white album pun. Because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of revolution. A lot of revolution. <laughs> I mean, just just the amount of revolutions it takes to get to four sides of a <laughs> record <true>. is <laughs> twice as many at this point. Yes, that's true. But uh, no, I I think that nowadays this just has these iconic who they looked like at this point. John with the long hair and the glasses. The way that the Beatles stuck in a lot of people's minds, I think, 
people that maybe weren't huge Beatles fans, uh, they look back to this as like the defining album of the Beatles. I see. And and the, those sales album, those sales numbers speak to themselves. I think more people probably ended up signing on to this version than anything else. So as a Beatles, as a Beatles fan, tried and true, mm. when you hear someone say the White Album is my favorite album, in your mind, do you think that they're a poser or? No. Okay. All right. Not that that's a nice, I mean, every music is subjective, you know, <laughs> right. but I know that there's like certain things yeah. you know, that are very sacred and special to people. As, sure. And so like, you know how it is. Like somebody could be yeah. like, oh, you're just a bandwagon fan because, right. you know, you would never pick that album if you were tried and true. Right. Yeah. Fan. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. No, I don't think that at all. I, I've only said that what I've said about this, and I think John and Frankie would probably agree that it's just that the lows are the are so low on this album versus and the highs are very high as well uh so yeah if somebody said this was their favorite Beatles album I don't think I would think oh well you don't know what their good music is cuz mm-hmm. there are a lot of songs on here that are some of my favorite Beatles songs so I'm like yeah I don't I don't think it's that big of a I I have been waiting I have been wait like I said I've been waiting for you to give me your thoughts on this because I try not to set it up too much. That's the only thing I really tried to kind of leak to you is like, hey, there may be a like maybe the worst songs that you've ever heard from the Beatles will be on this album, which is totally true, right? <laughs> but I mean, I I think I actually like this more than ever listening to it this week. Um, I think it's I think it's incredibly an incredibly like dynamic record. Yeah, well, and it's really. It's incredibly ambitious, and yeah, and it's it's again, it's so different than the stuff that they had just put out before this. All right, well, we got that introduction covered to those questions I had right off the top. Great. Okay. So, do you want to jump right into track one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Back, yeah, back, back, back in, in the USSR. USSR. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, this is Paul, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I hesitate to say that in terms of this song, it's like a regression to early Beatles rock and roll, but you can hear yeah. the influence of, of of their rock and roll bents in this song. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was hard to ignore the influence of Chuck Berry, Little, Little Richard, and a more modern version of that. You know, it doesn't sound like a, a ripoff or anything, but it sounds right. like those rock and roll sensibilities exist in the song. Yeah. Um, I On a, just a performance level, I really enjoyed what the guitar was doing in the chorus parts that was hard panned to the right oh so the like the octave doubled one yeah yeah it's i thought that was very cool i was wondering because you have said that john lennon usually wrote like very cool guitar parts i was wondering if that was john or george i don't know it may be both of them Mm. or it could have been paul he played a lot of things on this oh he did okay yeah so i thought that was so Purely on a performance standpoint, I, I thought that was a really cool part. But um, obviously the song title is provocative, right? Yeah. And so I did a little research, um, not on the song title, but like what was going on yeah. in terms of the world at the time. And so I'll try to give a very simplified history lesson okay. without giving too much information. Um, the title of the song did make my antenna go up and it, and I referenced the year that it was released and it says that this, this album was released in November of 1968. And so I researched what the relations were between the West and Russia 
at the time of that release. And it turned out that in August of 1968, prior to the release of this album, Russia and other members of the Warsaw Pact, which included Poland, Hungary, and Bulgaria, they had logistic support from East Germany and diplomatic support from Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and Mongolia invaded Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And uh, I guess for people that want to know more about what happened there, I would just encourage people to take a deep dive for themselves. But it does seem, at least from what I read, was that many of the countries in the West and other countries, including China, condemned the invasion. And it seemed like Russia was leading it. Yeah. So from what I can tell, it was a significant moment in the Cold War. Um, so with that added tension between the West and the USSR, I had to ask the question, why would the Beatles choose to release a song like this? So maybe you could give me some right. context on that. Well, I mean, on top of that, Vietnam, Vietnam was communism mm -hmm. versus capitalism, right? right? Like they, a lot of, I mean, I, I would imagine most people would probably kind of look at, at, at Vietnam being backed by the USSR, being backed by commun the communist agenda, you know? So yeah, for sure. And so that was 69. I mean, Vietnam was, was, peak at that point basically and so yeah um well in order to answer that i'll give you a little bit of background to the album okay uh most of the songs in this album were written on this uh at this retreat for transcendental meditation or tm which is something that george of course always kind of the eastern philosophy and religion kind of uh, attracted person. He had kind of asked the other guys to come with him. He was the most into it. And, uh, the Maharashi Mahesh Yogi, who is the guy who is like, he's, he's basically the, 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 maybe he didn't start it, but he's the one who kind of globalized it okay. and became its leading figure for the rest of, you know, of his life. He died in 2008. Uh, but they went on this retreat. It was for, let's see, they went, it's February 15th to April 12th. So I think George and John went first with their wives. Then Paul and Ringo showed up with their, I don't know who was with Paul, but Ringo with his wife, Maureen, they showed up. Ringo left early and then it actually ended pretty badly. There okay. was a, there was a, um, a rumor that had been started that the yogi, that the, their teacher had maybe sexually assaulted, uh, one of the, Mia Farrow the American actress or, oh, or, no. or some other woman at the time. Turns out later it was almost assuredly false. Like it actually wasn't, that didn't, didn't as far happen. as we can tell, that didn't happen. That's good news. But, and, and as far as I can tell George, at least George and Paul kind of reconnected with him later and, and kind of smoothed things over. With the yogi? Yeah. But, um, at the time, especially John was super pissed off and, him and George and Paul took off kind of in an outrage <laughs> and, and left, uh, maybe earlier than they wanted to. That's, that's side note for this. So they wrote a lot of these songs on that retreat. Interesting. So, and they just, as a lot of these songs are kind of guitar based because they, all they had was a guitar there. And so side the, real quick, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's some demos that I listened to too. Yes. Were those recorded while they were on that no, retreat? No, those okay. were recorded right when they came back. Cool. The Escher demos. Yeah. Those were, yeah, recorded at George's place right before they started recording. So Mike Love from the Beach Boys, he was on this retreat as well. There are some very famous pictures and videos of all these people of the Beatles, Mia Farrow, her sister Prudence, and, oh. and Mike Love and a few other kind of famous people. They were all here on this like retreat. 
And uh, Mike Love, I think it was his idea, actually. He was like, wouldn't it be funny if there was a song like Back in the USA, which was a Chuck Berry song, which is basically this, but about America. Okay. That's like, when I get back to the US, I love because we got cheeseburgers and hot rods and all the girls are, are the best here, you know. And it feels like it's kind of a parody of California Girls by the Beach Boys as well. Oh, wow. And so I think it was kind of his idea to be like, what if it was like that, but about the USSR? And it would be all these Russian landmarks mm. and terms, right? And so, so Paul thought that was hilarious. And so he wrote that. He wrote it. And I don't think... As far as I can tell, it doesn't have any real political. Like, if any, if anybody was like a communist, it would have been, would have been maybe George or John, uh, but they weren't. Mm. Like, they they had said that they they weren't really that. And uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, it it honestly seems like it is just irony. Oh, it is wow. just like like n- nowadays, maybe if you wrote if you wrote a parody of a song about North Korea or some other place that's very ideologically different than where we live, right? Like just to be fun, just to be funny and like to say, hey, wouldn't this be funny? It's almost, it's like an old time, it's 50s Americana kind of Bill Haley, Chuck Berry kind of thing, but it's about Russia. So yeah, that's, that's where that, that's as far as I can tell, that's what it's all about. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. Yeah. Um, so I, I very much like that story much more so than the potential that it was actually. Yeah. Propaganda. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, Paul played drums on this. Oh wow! Ringo, there was a point early on in the in the recording process where Ringo had got really fed up, and he said he was leaving the band, so he left for like a week. Well, why was he fed up? Just out of curiosity, was everybody at odds at this point? Yeah, this is probably the this is almost definitely the album. You'll see, there's some more in Let It Be, but um, where they were really at odds, and. Paul's perfectionism was probably the thing that drove Ringo away at this point. He had mm. messed up like a drum fill or something. And Ringo was like, you play it. And he just took off. And he says he's, he, I guess he spent like several days on Peter Sellers' yacht, the actor. The, the Pink, Pink Panther? The Pink Panther guy. It's kind of great. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and he came back and George had decorated his drum kit with flowers. Oh. And he, and like... They smoothed it over and everyone was happy he was back. Probably had a milkshake and <laughs> skipped some rocks. Yes. and uh, Right. And maybe took, maybe his took camera, some photos. Took some photos, yeah. Uh, but back in the USSR and Dear Prudence, the first two songs on the record, Paul's playing drums on these because Ringo had, had taken off oh. at this point. So Paul really is a multi-instrumentalist. Then. Yeah. Yeah, he can play the drums for sure. Interesting. Yeah. I remember we talked with John last... Two, two episodes ago about how like there's a drum fill in uh, maybe Lovely Rita or something where it was like, that's got to be Paul because like Ringo would never do that. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. The only other thing I have here is John is on bass on this one. Okay. He, he would play bass on a, several songs. Yeah. That's cool that they're all switching things up a little bit. And yeah. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Um, Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Well, Probably, I feel like you just blew my my perception or my deduction okay. of the song right out of the water uh, by referencing a person named Prudence. But we'll mm-hmm. get to that in a second. Yeah. To me, I I looked it up as a as a song that felt more like John was was personifying a noun actually of Prudence. Oh, interesting. Like Prudence was you know meaning ca- like caution or caution cautiousness. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually wanted to read the lyrics and, and read along as I was listening to it a few times. Yeah. And 
it did reading lyrics to that song really made me appreciate the song more. I did enjoy the repetitive guitar part and how the bass is carrying the mm-hmm. like the harmonic melody. Uh, yeah. It sort of reminded me of that song um, Holocene by Bon Iver. Oh, okay. It has that like repetitive guitar part going cool. and carrying. Um, uh, but there was something really intimate about what I, well, at least the way that I re- listened to it and thought the song would be about was John having a conversation with an aspect of his own personality. Wow. Or a character that John is writing about who's become cautious to the point where they've sort of like lost their sense of wonder. Yeah. And so particularly like a childlike wonder and that a case is made to consider some examples that he provides in the lyrics that could like liberate a suppressed childlike wonder. But I thought it was a beautiful song, especially for somebody who's like experienced hardship and is needing encouragement or reminded that they're not alone in their caution to like live again. sort sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought it was a beautiful song and I really loved it even more once I read the lyrics. Yeah. But that was my takeaway. It sounds like I'm wrong. Um, so let, <laughs> let's hear, yeah, hear, yeah. hear what it actually is. Well, you're so right on so many levels. I think it's, in, before I tell you, like it's, it's, in, it's kind of beautiful how you were able to kind of distill the meaning of this, even though maybe the, uh, the object of the song was, is not what you thought it was. All of those interpretations you were just saying are, are right on. Hmm. What had happened was, yeah, Prudence Pharaoh, Mia Pharaoh's, so Mia Pharaoh is this famous American actress and her and her sister Prudence had come on this trip. And I, I believe that Prudence had gone on an acid trip at some point uh, a little bit before this and it really messed her up. And so I think that's part of why she was doing this, this TM stuff was she was really like, she was looking to kind of center herself and wanted to kind of wanted redemption and she took it incredibly seriously, maybe for that reason, but she took like a fanatical approach to meditation and she would spend days in her room just sitting there and, mm. and meditating way more than everyone else. Everyone else, like the, the Beatles and Mike Love and these other people, they'd be kind of outside in like a common area and they'd be writing songs and they would just be like hanging out and, you know, it would be, they'd have teaching and then they would have common time together and there'd be certain times each day where they would be expected to go and do this, but she was just doing it all the time. Yeah. Barely eating and sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so I think somebody there, I don't know if it was the yogi, but somebody there was like asked John and I think Paul, if they would talk to her because they had done LSD and they had kind of come from a similar background of hers as hers and to kind of ask her to, come out and say, and to try to like, try to get her to kind of temper it a little bit. Cause she was, she was, I believe kind of a new, uh, you know, a beginner to this thing. And one of the things about TM is that if you, there's a chance that if you start it, you can get like this, you can go just into the deep end really, really quick. And so if you're not used to it, it can kind of just overwhelm you. And so she was coming out of this in like a fugue state or just a state of like not remembering who she was kind of thing. So that's what this song is. I think they were waiting for her. And John was, he's like, they asked me to ask her this. It just and what so what you're just saying. So what you were just saying makes so much sense. He's talking about how blue the sky is, mm. and saying, "Hey, this is great. This thing that you're doing on inside yourself is great. But the rest of us are out here. Look at the sky. 
you're still a part of all of this too. You're mm-hmm. still a part of us and the world and the world is beautiful and the world needs you. And so, yeah. So I feel like all that stuff you were saying totally actually applies still to who it actually was. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's an even more beautiful song now that I know that about it, yeah. you know, that I know that this is, this was his, it's not to himself and it's also not like a romantic partner or anything. It's just this person that he was trying to like get to. I think that this is such an um, interestingly balanced and healthy mental approach to, especially um, even though I'm not a practicer of Eastern religion, yeah. um, uh, I do have a, a, a spiritual faith, um, but it does seem like any faith or religion, I've heard a phrase that says, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Right. Yes, and so yeah. like for her, it was meditation <laughs> yeah. and that can happen a lot. And, yeah. and so it is a good song and a good reminder to yeah. not compartmentalize. It's really all uh, complimentary. Yeah. Don't lose yourself. Mm. Let yourself remain open to what God or the world is going to tell you, mm. whatever your, regardless of what your belief system is like, remain open to those around you. Yeah. 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 In in some ways, it, yeah, it's such a profoundly meaningful song for everyone to hear. It is. Loved it. This has so many cool musical moments. Mm. And I always think about the beginning of the song, the super, the arpeggios on the guitar and the really gentle voice. But as it goes, it, there's a really cool kind of party element to it yes. that I really, I really like. I agree. Has a, it, it sort of feels like uh, stepping into a warm pool. Yeah. Actually, there's just sort of puts you at ease. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I really love it. It's, it's got a really cool kind of dynamic journey. That yes. Takes. Yeah. All right. Um, Glass Onion. Glass Onion. Okay. I know we said it's difficult to know sometimes when it's John and when it's George on lead vocals. Yeah. But if I don't guess this right, then we should just end the podcast <laughs> right now. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Because <laughs> the first line is, I told you about Strawberry Fields. So <laughs> right, this yeah. is a John Lennon yeah. song. Um, we're not ending the podcast right now. No, correct? it's, okay, it's John. God. That would be an amazing fake out, though, <laughs> if this was a George be. song. <laughs> it would be. Um, he would earn major oh, major points. <laughs> he would. Well, it felt like it could have been on Rubber Soul. I, I, um, I actually listened. So I actually counted the tempo out as I was listening to it and it's yeah. the exact same tempo as drive my car oh, okay um within like a fraction of a beat per yeah, minute. yeah okay it's right there um and so that to me showed me that this is something that john feels comfortable in and like this yeah. tempo this style of writing sure this is this is really john yeah but actually wait a minute drive my car was not a john no song, that was, was it well yeah that was more of a paul song more but paul song. i think at the time, they were probably a little more collaborative than they okay. were here, yeah. Okay. Uh, lyrically, I was wondering if it was taking the same approach as I Am the Walrus, because like that challenging you to, yeah. like, I dare you to find any meaning in this. Is this sort of similar, or is yeah. there, like, actually meaning to this? No, it, it, it really is that. Okay. It's doing, I think it's kind of taking that a step further in the that he's quoting all of these Beatles songs. He's even quoting stuff that they had, just, like... He quote he quotes uh, Lady Madonna even in this. Oh really? And like that had come out 
not too long before this, <laughs> like only only months before this. So yeah, he's he's intentionally quoting the Beatles music. Whereas that first one, I think it was the message was with for I'm the walrus. It felt like the message was maybe don't read into my lyrics. These are just songs. Like stop giving them meaning. Uh, whereas this one is m- maybe more stop making the Beatles more important than they are. Hmm. And, and then a similar thing of like, and it's all going to be a bunch of garbage. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of things that, that are tech, they don't make sense, but they technically represent stuff in this, that, that they're all kind of inside references that his friends would know. I'm not even going to get into them. They're just so like obscure, hmm. but yeah, it's it's just very and then intentionally misleading. Like he says, the walrus was Paul. Yeah, yeah, I noticed you know? that, and I wasn't sure if that was a jab or. <laughs> I don't think so. No, it was just something <laughs> nonsensical. I think that's probably somebody. Maybe it had to do with the cover we were talking about when we were guessing last episode who was who on the on the front of Magical Mystery Tour. But like again, I think it's like it probably been been established who was who on that cover, and he was intentionally saying. And by the way, it wasn't that the walrus was Paul. Right. Like I think he said, it's almost like a final jab to just be like, you can't. And figure by the this way, out. yeah, stop trying to figure this out. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, um, I I think this is funnier in most ways. I think than on the walrus. Like you even yes. said that line, the wall was fe- it was it contributed to you feeling like that album was maybe a little more dark and sad. Whereas this one just feels like right off the top. It's like I told you about strawberry fields. It's a little more up tempo. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel dark right. to me. Yeah. It yeah. just feels super silly. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Um, on a performance um, level, the ascending melody and instrumental, I I really really love yeah. that part. Um, I also really love the strings that are incorporated in the latter part of the song. Yeah, as giving a really interesting. It's a outro. really intricate it is. arrangement. Yeah, very much so. I, when I listened to that this week, I really didn't remember that. I, I just pictured this as kind of a straightforward song, or, right. or, or arrangement. And then, yeah, it's got all this ec- these extra instruments, and it's really yeah, it's a lot going on. Yeah, it's so I guess I've heard you say like you, it feels like classic Beatles to me. This felt like classic Beatles a little bit because yeah. I'm a little bit nostalgic at least in my listening experience because it, it reminded me of aspects of Rubber Soul right. or Sgt. Pepper's and so I really did enjoy this song a lot so yeah. um, I'm enjoying this album so far yeah. actually so yeah. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised as I'm listening through this project right, yeah. at this point but yeah, I'm waiting for all the you... shoe to drop yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah some shoes will drop they will they will and when <laughs> they do boy yeah it's like a kick in the teeth. Um, <laughs> All right. Okay, next song. Next Do you have anything to add to that? Or? No. No. Okay. Obladi. Oblada. Obladi, Oblada. First of all, if if our listeners, if you've, if you've not heard this song before, at least an aspect, <laughs> then you have lived under a rock your whole life. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Is, it is, you have had to have heard this song. It's made its way around the world many times. It has. Yeah. Um, this song made me happy when yeah. I heard it. I was like, this song just makes me absolutely happy, um, which I am not a fan of happy songs. I'll be the first right. to admit, I'm like a sad songs right. guy, um, and I seldomly enjoy happy songs, with the exception of 70s funk and disco. I love <laughs> yeah. that stuff. But yeah. um, something about these type of McCartney songs is sort of feel like they could be on like a Pixar soundtrack. Yeah. Really do something to uplift my right. soul. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was like, 
imagining like if I was like leaving a bad relationship or quitting a <laughs> crappy job or I would play this song and like drive out of there. Listening yeah. To this. yeah. Um, so to that point, yeah. it, it is the albums like when I'm 64 and mother, you should know, hmm. which I think is um, interesting. Cause it seems like this is something that's near and dear to Paul, at least in his yeah. upbringing musically. Yeah. Um, and what was that that Paul drew that influence from? Because it seems to like continue to pop up in the songs that he writes. I wouldn't say that this. I would say that uh, Honey Pie, the second one, the one that's near the oh, end. Yeah. I would say is much more kind of. We said before it's like kind of like his dad. His dad had this kind of music hall. Um, I I almost the word vaudevillian comes okay, to mind for me. Sure. That kind of thing with a lot of clarinets and when I'm sixty four. Um, this one is a little more like early ska, hmm. I think with the doom, 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 kind of like a Jamaican influenced oh, okay. thing yep. that seems to be what he's pulling from this kind of, it's like an African influence thing, especially cause that's actually where the phrase comes from as well, which is a whole story unto itself, which I can tell now. Yes. Um, he knew this guy, Jimmy Scott, who was a band leader. He's from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. He was a Congo player. Uh, conga, sorry, bongos, congas. He was a conga player. Uh, like m- many of these great kind of like l- these like Latin percussion bands kind of things, you know, they would like the conga player would be kind of like the guy who's in charge and calling the shots and picking the songs and stuff. And he was this really, as far as you could tell, this very effusive kind of uh, charismatic band leader guy. J- Jimmy Scott was his name. And, uh, he would always say this thing, obladi, oblada, and he got to the point where, like, at his concerts, he'd say obladi, and the crowd would say oblada, and then they'd say life goes on. Huh. And it just means life goes on. I believe that's what it said, what it means, you know. It's just saying, like, it's like a kuna matata kind of thing, <laughs> you know. It's one of these phrases that just means, hey, it is what it is, or, or, or maybe that sounds a little darker, but yeah, like, it means life goes on. Which it fits exactly, of course, with the tone of the thing, um, and so I think Paul he this guy actually was on an earlier version of the song. I believe mm. they brought in studio musicians to play earlier versions. They did a lot of takes for this album, mm. and uh, they didn't like any of them. So I believe this is pretty much just them playing. I wouldn't be surprised if George Martin played that piano, but uh, I I believe Paul wrote it on piano. This maybe it's Paul. Anyway, this guy tried actually to get a songwriting credit. Oh, cause, really? Because okay. he's like, I always say that, and Paul learned it from me. And Paul's like, you didn't make it up, though. <laughs> like, it's just a saying. It's like a say- it's a saying from your neck of the woods. But like, so he never gave him a, a songwriting I think credit. At some point, he ended up giving him money. There's a there's a funny story. I mean, it's, it's it wasn't funny at the time, but I think he had like medical bills or something, and he chased Paul down later and was like, "Hey, you owe me money for Obladi." And Paul was like, "I'll give you some money if you stop asking me for the songwriting credit." So he finally like gave him some money in that way. Uh, but yeah, which I'm like, I kind of see Paul's point of view on this one where I'm sure. like, yeah, if this guy didn't make up the phrase, then like he certainly doesn't get like, right, like songwriting it, credit. Like if you heard somebody say, say la vie or something, you know, like <laughs> exactly. I want a songwriting credit. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I think it's more that, I think it's more this kind of Africa, Jamaica, uh, that kind of musical influence more than like an old timey kind of like the music hall thing where, where, okay. where those other songs are coming from. Maybe it's just Paul couldn't quite pull off the Jamaican sort of thing right. like fully and that still oh, sure. like you can hear he it. He doesn't. I yeah. mean, you can't. This doesn't sound like 
a band from like the Caribbean or from Africa. You know, it doesn't it doesn't sound like that kind of rhythm at all. Right. It really the if you listen just to the bass, like that sounds like it. Hey, that was just stereo, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I can I can oh. pan that out. But yeah, I think that it, it's. It seems to be, and that's kind of the general consensus too. People are like, oh, this is him trying to do that. But I think in him reaching for that, it does end up being this kind of unique thing. And it is, a, I, I mean, I really enjoy the song every time I hear it. Me like too. It, it makes me happy as well. It's so singable. And then, like, especially the part where it's like, uh, in a couple of years, they have built a home sweet home. Ba, ba, na, na, da, na, na, da, na, na. Like the horns and everything, right. right? There's just a lot of great moments like that that are like great. Like you can bang along to it, like dung, dung, dung. You know, there are all these little claps and stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. Actually, I did, I did notice that I'm pretty sure you might want to vet me on this, but I, I'm pretty sure that to date, there was the highest pitch vocal on any Beatles song in their in their catalog by at mm. least a whole step or two, I think. Especially in that bridge part that you're referencing. I mean yeah, you it could really be. get up there. Yeah, that that he yeah, his vocal he has a great vocal performance in this one too. It, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I thought too. Yeah. Like absolutely like fantastic. Yeah. What a great vocalist. Um a couple of funny notes on this one. Well John hated this song <laughs> After the fact, of course, but he hated all their songs. Um, but he seemed to have fun while he recorded it. So okay. it seems like maybe that's just an overall thing. Like how how did they determine he was having fun? Like uh, like you can you can literally hear him on some of the takes, like goofing around. Oh, okay. You know, of, of this one specifically, and he just did say that about almost every Beatles song, <laughs> like other than like the end, or other than like a day in the life, and maybe Strawberry Fields and stuff, like some of his top ones. But yeah, I think it's I, I just think that's hilarious that like so many songs as I'm researching them in like. Not just like in many different sources, even like I'm I'm looking at these reading these different books. There's on so many songs. There's just a note that's like in 1980 or in 1975. Like John gave an interview that said, "Yeah, that was a heaping pile of garbage." Wow, <laughs> you know? that's so interesting. Yeah, I know it's kind of fun. Even songs that he that, that he, he wrote, wrote and pushed through on his own power. You know, at the beginning of the song, it says um, Molly is the singer in the band, and she spends time making up her pretty face and Desmond is the she's a singer with the band and near the end he says Desmond makes his doing is doing his pretty face hmm. and he screws up the lyrics where he like he switches the characters yes and they left they everyone else thought it was hilarious so they just left it in I love that <laughs> this take yeah <laughs> that's great I guess we can move on to wild honey pie wild honey pie so uh, I'm just going to read my actual note here. Yeah. Okay. It says, just fulfilling contract obligations, question mark. I still like it more than Dizzy Miss Lizzie. <laughs> That's all I have. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. This was like an overdubbing experiment for Paul. So he it was all him. It's all by himself. And well, here we'll listen to it. Yeah, let's listen. That vibrato. Mm -hmm. So he was just playing around with like bending the strings really, f really far on his guitar. Okay. 
And he was just like, all right, run the tape again. And he started playing it all in harmony. So that's all him singing. So it's just an experimentation of, I, it was of just, his it overdubs. Seemed, yeah, it seemed like it was just, uh, he just kind of was, what if I did this? What if I did this again? And what if I built on it? And that was it. I found one source saying that it was it was a thing that they had done back in Rishikesh when they were just fooling around and they were they kept kind of going back to this this honey pie line <laughs> as like a joke. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. So I, I mean, it what seems the, like it's a joke. It's literally yeah. you know. <laughs> I wonder what the inside joke was. <laughs> honey pie. I don't know, but it's funny that later there's like a real song. Right. With the, almost the same name. That is funny. <laughs> Which is not the only time that that happens on the album. No, no. Funny enough. Yes. Okay. Uh, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Yes. This is a John song, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I read the lyrics and because I had to listen to this song a few times. Yeah. Initial, it's a lot. My initial reaction to it was like, I, it, meh, yeah. actually. But then I was like, I need to give this another, another listen. I need to read the lyrics. Yeah. So as I read it, it seems like it's a jab at some political figure and commentary on the Vietnam War. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but it seemed to feel that way when I read, read through the lyrics. Um, I was also interested who the kiddos were on the recording. It didn't really elicit a strong reaction for me. Uh, it was sort of a take it or leave it song. So yeah, maybe you could fill in the gaps for me a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I would say I wouldn't call it a take it song. Okay. I don't know if I'd leave it. Okay. But I don't know if yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's a high point of <laughs> okay. the album. I think it's pretty catchy. Is it the chorus? Yeah. Of course. Hey Bungalow Bill. Yeah. I believe those voices are maybe a couple of the wives slash girlfriends of hmm. the Beatles. There were a couple times where they came in, Yoko and maybe Patty Harrison. A couple of the songs had that. There was also one, I, I don't know which song it was, but there were a couple like fans huh. outside the studio. There would always be fans hanging outside Abbey sure. Road. And they would, sometimes they would ask them to come in and sing if they needed like extra like gang vocals or stuff like that. Wow. And, and this song seems like it would be one of the most obvious times for that because it's definitely just this kind of sing along with like a bunch of people singing. Yeah. Uh, the song is about, there's a guy that they met in Rishikesh. I believe that his mother was one of the people on the retreat. So he was in India and he was on like a hunting trip and he was hunting tigers. And his name, his name was Richard Cook III. He was from America. He was clearly like kind of a wealthy young person. He actually did go on a tiger hunt with his mom, <laughs> huh. which is what the song's about. Wow. He regretted killing the tiger and... I think when they met him, he was feeling very confused as to like, I came all this way and then I killed this tiger and now I feel really bad about killing this tiger. And he actually became, he never, he's never like went hunting again. He actually became a photographer for National Geographic. That's later. What a better story than <laughs> a political job at, job at Vietnam. But Paul, uh, John, John was like kind of making fun of him saying like, you entitled American brat, like huh. you come all the way here and then you ride an elephant and shoot a tiger and now you're crying about it. He's like, get, <laughs> get real dude. <laughs> wow. You know, and you know, John was pretty anti-violence. So, you know, I don't think he was saying stop crying about killing the tiger, but he's like, stop, <laughs> stop killing tigers and then crying about it. You know, mm. <laughs> I think he, he felt he was really looking down on this, on this kid. Right. Being uh, really judgy. Yeah, I think so. Or just, I mean, sound, seems like John 
obviously he a sense of humor was really was a big part of his personality and it feels like yeah he he was probably the kind of person who if somebody around him felt like they kind of had a layer of bs like this he was gonna rib them about it he was mm-hmm. gonna like kind of bust their chops a bit well i'm glad i was wrong again uh <laughs> these takeaways there'll be there's at least one political (laughs) song but i feel like you know what you'll know what it is when we get there yeah uh but yeah they they did manage to kind of stay out of politics which i think is not accidental like that i think that's one of the reasons why they have stuck around so long because they were able to at least in their music you know wow okay yeah um so the next song Oh, thank oh, God for this next song. Or do you one, have more to share? There's one last thing about okay. Bungalow Bill, which is that, you know, there's this weird... Oh, yeah, the, like, flamenco guitar thing. It's really quiet, too. <laughs> yes. That, that is a that is a, a Mellotron preset. So, like, a Mellotron, the way it works is it had these tape cartridges in it, mm-hmm. and then, it, you know, every time you pressed a... It's like a keyboard instrument. Every key you'd press down, it would play a different tape loop of like a flute or a choir or something. And But it came with these like, one of the cartridges was like just a bunch of like random sounds, samples. And so that's what this was. So one of them, if you pressed a key down, it would play that. That's awesome. <laughs> so they just stuck it on the front. So it's totally like the same as us using splice or whatever now right. and just grabbing like samples from things and using them like hip-hop people do in like random ways you know like right. that's that's all it was that's so funny they start the whole song that way right <laughs> that's that's part part funny but also part like are they giving her giving a crap about some of the stuff now? right like, yeah you know like are we just doing stuff yeah you know? right um, <laughs> they're just having fun. They're just having fun. Uh, before we get to the next song, which is a doozy, mm-hmm. I think one of the themes about this album really, and y- you're definitely already picking up on this, but it's all about like juxtaposition. It's there's not a lot of like other than like we were just saying about obla di obla da. There's not a lot of genre bending. So like you, the rock songs are rock. And the folk songs are folk. Mm. Whereas with Sgt. Pepper's, there was a little more, like, obviously, A Day in the Life was just mashing these different styles together kind of thing. And this album feels like, it just feels, upon this listening, that seems like a real aim of the album is juxtaposition, is putting this song next to that song, which is a crazy pairing, which is, and then if you look at the next song, that's a crazy pairing. And then the next song, that's a crazy pairing. Whereas... With, with Sgt. Pepper's, it was meant as this, almost like a through line. It was meant as this curated concept album. This is every bit as much of a concept album as Sgt. Pepper's was, it seems. But the goal was to keep the audience kind of reeling and to to make it so that you're kind of shook out of your hmm. stupor almost every, every track. It so, feels... So it was intentional. Yeah, it's wow. definitely intentional. And that's one thing that I think I've always kind of looked at this album as kind of this catch-all. Like they were all working on different things, all four of them, and they just threw a bunch of stuff in the pot. And there was more of that going on than any other album for sure. But it really feels like once they had these tracks together, it was a very intentional sequencing and it felt like it was they they meant to do it this way Mm. in a very kind of meta way i'll also say this this album has been analyzed 
to death and back. You can find so many opinion pieces about this everywhere from the New Yorker and Pitchfork and all these, especially when it was re-released in on the 50th anniversary a few years ago. That's, that's mind blowing 50 years old. I know, I know. Wow. But like, there's just so many takes on, on a specifically that on what is the nature of this album? What is the meaning of this album as a whole? And that's the kind of stuff where I just stopped. I'm like, I'm not going to read into it. I'm just going to see how it hits me. But the thing that, that did hit me about it, my take on it is that it, like I said before, it feels like it's the opposite of Sergeant Pepper's. It's not psychedelic. Really, no. Sergeant Pepper's is about presenting this. Here's what I wrote: Um, Where Sergeant Pepper's was silly, this was serious. While Sergeant Pepper's was looking at life as a whimsical abstraction, this was meant to be a more visceral look Mm. at life and death. And you, I mean, Hmm. again, Sergeant Pepper's. There's layers of of uh, kind of affected stuff going on, like with uh, with little help from my friends or. or, or a day in the life, or uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, there are these these very curated weirdness, you know. These and that's what a lot of what psychedelic, you know, the psychedelic movement was was creating these kind of sound collages that were birthed out of these drugs. This one feels really visceral. So many of these songs are just like there's pretty dry. There's not a lot of reverb, right? And they're just gut punches. And they could be gut punches like Helter Skelter, or they could be gut punches like Blackbird, but they're, you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's it's in your face, it's right there, and it's not pretending to really be anything else. And I think because of that, I think Glass Onion is such a kind of a flagship song for this album. And he's saying, like, stop reading into things. Hmm. Stop making us, <laughs> stop looking for meaning. Here's what it means. Here's what this album means. It means just listen to it and enjoy it. That's kind of his, he's kind of telling us that at the top of this and then saying, so strap in and enjoy what's coming, you know? Which is cool because sometimes I think musicians and songwriters and artists are looked at as yeah philosophers and right. you know, like, they, like they have all the answers and I mean, and most of th- that puts so, so much pressure on the artist. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily have to be there. So I do appreciate that mm-hmm. they are setting a boundary essentially with the listener. Yeah. Like we're just going to write music and it doesn't yep. have to have a deep meaning to it. We're just going to do and it you, and share And you see them you, with the creation of Sgt. Pepper's, that's part of Paul's deal, was saying, hey, we're not the Beatles anymore. We're this other thing. And then the whole uh, we're bigger than Jesus comment that got John in all that hot water. Yeah. That's what he was saying even at that point. This is years ago at this point, like three maybe years ago. He was saying this. Basically, he's like, that's ridiculous. Like, we're the, the idea of the Beatles is bigger than Jesus now. Why? Why are we, why is everyone going crazy over our band? This doesn't make any sense. So you can see that it's a long-term problem for him. Hmm. And that he's really, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Eddie Vedder. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Sure. Like, Eddie's always said that he just he would rather just play clubs for the last 40 years or whatever it's been he's like i would rather just play and live in a van i was enjoying that part of it and then we got famous and we started playing for a hundred thousand people and Mm. i'm you know i'm sure that he likes some parts of of that 
Yeah. But, but it seems like he's more more so, it seems like he kind of resents it a little bit and wishes mm-hmm. he could be a little more anonymous. So it feels like John is definitely in that camp a little bit. Of, he's like, why, why is everyone holding this microscope or the, yeah, this microscope up to me and my lyrics and us and our decisions. And it's like, what, are, <laughs> what are you all doing? I wonder where he would have, where he would have been, or where he would have gone, what he would have done had he, yeah. his life lasted longer. It's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I I think about that often, about how, you know, where Paul and Ringo have gone in this in this current age and have stayed out of the news for the most part. For, for the wrong reasons, but like John, if he was around, he'd probably be, I mean, he'd probably, <laughs> if he was around, he'd probably make Michael Stipe look like John Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> that he, is a great he, line. If he was around. We should probably, that should be our t-shirt right there. <laughs> I think that might be it. Yeah. John would have been, John, <laughs> I mean, he would have been banned off of every... Everything, you know, or, or I don't know what he would have been like, I, that's probably who he'd be now, or he'd be a complete recluse. He would have mm. eventually just tired of it all. Like and a hermit. He'd live on some, yeah, some island somewhere. He'd basically make Henry Rollins look like a schoolgirl <laughs> and socialite. <laughs> make Henry Rollins look like Paris Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so oh, he'd either make Michael Stipe look like John Bon Jovi, or he'd make Henry Rollins look like Paris Hilton. That's our T-shirt. I love it, look and it's a it. picture of those five people. Yes. <laughs> oh man, that's just wonderful. <laughs> okay, so should we go into the next tune here? Yes. Okay, I said it a few minutes ago. Thank God for this song. Yeah, it's a revelation. Yeah. In the catalog while my guitar gently weeps. And I, th- I think I said sent you a text while I was doing my my listening, yeah. And I said that I have appreciated deeply appreciated so many songs, and I, there's songs I've been going back to and listening, particularly a day in life, um, yesterday. But this is the first song that I have heard that actually literally ar- arrested me. I, I yeah. stopped in my tracks as soon as this came on, and I thought, mm. wow what a revelation a song is. Um, if someone argued against the musical brilliance of, of the songwriting mastery of this band, I would literally just play this song. I'd sit them down and just say, listen to this, listen to this yeah. song. Um, and I, I, I read the lyrics looking for the meaning and just kind of, it's funny that this dovetails into what we've just previously said because I couldn't quite tell if it was like a personal indictment that there's so much going on in the world yeah. that I don't agree with, but I'm just going to play my guitar rather than get involved more. Mm. Or I couldn't tell if it had like a self-righteousness to it, a posit that they didn't, that they have the secret of what it means to be truly loving while the world is going, going down the wrong, going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Or as weeping guitars as lament, or is it all of the above or does it mean nothing? But it didn't matter. I think at the end of it is what my takeaway from it was. It was just something so very special that was captured. And I just, as I was listening, I was literally trying to put myself in the mindset of being like George Martin behind the, behind the board, listening to this taking yeah. place and just wondering like what kind of chills or goosebumps or like, this couldn't have been like one of those moments where, where they're like, 
great take, fellas. I mean, it had to be like, mm. wow, yeah. I need to go outside and smoke a cigarette after right. that because this is just some, something. Yeah. Sort of like in that, that uh, May It Last documentary of the Avery oh, Brothers, Brothers, yeah. When they do, when they go through the performance of um, uh, No Hard Feelings. No Hard Feelings, yeah. And afterwards, they just have to like leave the studio yeah. for a moment. Just gotta go outside. Realize something really special. Take a breather. Place. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way I felt about this song. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's an incredible vocal performance. It feels like this song, it's either about the world or it's about the Beatles. Mm. And it feels like, I think you're right, that he, that's what he's saying basically is like, I look at what's going around, going on around me and I'm kind of lamenting it and bemoaning the fact that these people around me that I love and I care about are not getting along and that there's chaos and there's divorce and I'm sitting here playing my guitar mm. and, and, and uh, you know, the weeping part is, is kind of beautiful because it's saying it's like my lament is coming out through my guitar, mm. right? That like me through my music, that is my grief and that is my processing. Uh, I think that's really the central, even if he didn't mean it that way, I think that's the central like kind of beauty, lyrical beauty of the song. Mm. Um, I think we feel that as creators and as songwriters, you know, like that sometimes that's the way that you can get over things. So that's sure. the way that you can work through things is is writing about it and making sense of things in that way. He was, George was reading the, it's called the I Ching, the Chinese book of changes and uh, it's a, a philosophy thing. And he wanted to apply the rule of chance to his writing. So basically putting him, surrendering himself to the universe and saying, what the universe gives me, I will take and, and write with that. So he, just, he was at his parents' house and he pulled a n random novel off the shelf and he just looked for like the first phrase he could find and it was gently weeps. Somebody mm. gently weeps. And so, he, so that's the beginning of this song. Wow. And, he, and he, I don't know where he went from there. If guitar so was, it was the solely next part. George that wrote this? So yeah. it was, oh, it was. Because I did, I thought I saw it was credited to all three of them as no. a songwriting credit. No, it's just, just George. George. But notably, I don't know if you noticed this, this is one of the more famous collaborations. Uh, the guitar solo is Eric Clapton. I was going to ask. I was like, yeah. It doesn't no, sound like George. George. <laughs> it's a lot more muscular. I had a, I had a, I actually, in the back of my mind, I was wondering, I was like, is yeah. this Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck? It's got to be one of the right. two guys. Yeah. 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 So he, George was kind of famously, uh, timid about his own guitar playing or kind of self doubting. He really didn't have a lot of self esteem about his own, like especially lead playing. Uh, which you'll see when we get into Get Back in the documentary where he keeps talking about Clapton. He's like, we should just bring <laughs> Eric in and he should play these parts. Mm. Uh, and he was a great guitar player, but he just didn't have a lot of confidence. And so, yeah, so he brought it and it, Clapton didn't want to, but Cl this was a song that the other guys I think didn't like that much mm. uh, for whatever reason. And Clapton really liked it. And he was like, this is the best song you've ever written. Him and Clapton were pretty tight. Mm -hmm. They would go on to do um, Derek and the Dominoes. That whole scene is like one in my head. You, we'll, right. we'll do a, 
hopefully we'll do an episode someday on all things must pass because mm-hmm. that one and 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 those that album and then uh that Derek and the Dominoes album occupy the same space in my brain I think mm-hmm. but uh Eric loved the song he really didn't want to play on it and he was very he wanted to give George his space yeah and he was he was just very adamant that like no non beatles should play guitar on something but eventually he kind of relented and yeah and it's cool. I mean, I, I like his playing on it too. This is still, I'm an early Clapton fan. Mm. Uh, and this still sounds like him. It sounds like I believe Cream was just wrapping up at this point. So it still feels like, it feels like his soul. And it, and it honestly feels like George. It feels like he was in a way kind of channeling George in his kind of vibrato and, and his phrasing. Like it feels like the kind of stuff that that George would play. It was his kind of phrasing and rhythm. Uh, so it doesn't feel it doesn't feel bastardized for me in the way that I think he was afraid it might be. Mm. That was a great, great background info on that. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's a it's a loaded song for sure. There's a crazy bass sound on this. I don't know if you know like Paul's playing a fender, I think like a jazz bass on it. And it here. Yeah, let's, let's play, play it. a little bit of it. It's on the right side. Mm-hmm. Is it a fretless? No, I don't think so. It just sounds pretty like chorusy. Right. It's distorted, really compressed. I wonder how many guys like played this with like big fuzz when they were like yeah. covering it. You know? I think I remember there was a thing like last year, or the year before. It's Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin listening to a bunch of these stems. They mm-hmm. have a bunch of these like tracks, and they're just like going through the tracks and they're they're playing this back and. Rick brings up that bass. It's on its own track. And he's like, what were you doing? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? And Paul's like, I have no idea. <laughs> he's like, that's pretty uh, cool, though. <laughs> it is cool. It is cool. Um, this really, this heavily suggests what I keep um, kind of alluding to, which is George making this All Things Must Pass record. Pass all things must pass mm. record. Uh, this is really starting to sound like his, it's a lot of percussion. Uh, just the, has a really specific kind of sound palette and overall sound. Mm. And uh, this is really starting to, he's starting to come into his own. So we're going to hear, here comes the sun and something uh, along with a couple others. But those are really that you can see his, his sensibility really emerging now uh, up until now it's been, a little more scattershot. I think a lot of sure. George's songs have felt a little more random. So he's stepping into his his own. Yeah, I think he's flourishing. Yeah. Man, interesting stuff. Well, yeah. I didn't have any other takeaways from that. Just thankful that I got to hear that song. Yeah. It's really yeah. wonderful. It's great. Also, I would say one more thing about that is that that feels like the most, one of the most classic rock Beatles songs. That would make sense. You know what I, I mean? Hear that. Yeah. And like people like your dad probably love that. Actually, probably love that song. He said, <laughs> he said, I really like that song, but he was so dialed in on Rocky Raccoon. Okay. <laughs> like we'll get to it when that's we get awesome. to it. But that was yeah. for weeks. Yeah. That's all he talked about. That's awesome. Have you listened? Have you heard Rocky Raccoon? But I, yeah, I know that your dad really likes that era of, music and it feels more like 
like cream, like mm. White Room, or uh, there'll be some other ones like Come Together. There are some other Beatles ones that are are more classic rock. Mm. When we think about classic rock, edging towards like Sabbath and Zeppelin and stuff, right? right. ACDC. But this one feels it because of the chord progression, because the of lead obviously guitar. the lead guitar. It just feels like. People that like classic rock are like going to be like, yeah, that's the Beatles' best well, song. Like know? a Skinnerd guy could get into yes, this too. Exactly. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. All right, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Okay, so happiness is a warm gun is the next two. Yes, this is the last song of side one out of four. By the way. Okay, pretty strong first yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so happiness is a warm gun. My notes on this was uh, it, it was a disorienting song to me when, yeah, I, when yeah. I heard it. Um, I think it sort of hints at the plotting of a like of a man murdering like a controlling woman is really okay because he talks about this like velvet hand which is like sort of like uh-huh. it's like on an outside seems very yeah polite and caring but it's like ruling with a mm-hmm. iron fist um seems like there may be some drug use hinted at i could hear the queens of a stone age covering this song actually yeah um yeah and i know it's a popular song I think it is anyway, but I really, f- this is one that was so disorienting to me when I heard it that I felt that I really needed context or explanation to make me appreciate it. Similar to how you and Frankie brought me into the world of Strawberry Field. Yeah. I think there's maybe more to the story of this sure. song because a lot of, it seems like a lot of purists absolutely adore this song. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. This was not surprisingly three different songs that John had written hmm. and he just kind of, figured a way to play them all in a row. This is one where, once again, you're overthinking it as far as the meaning. Okay. But there actually is kind of a... I think I, John's mind worked in a in a funny way or in a really kind of either, I think, a very profound and very simple way sometimes. So the, the remind you of the different parts of the song. The, the song starts with the part that goes... Um, She's not a girl who misses much. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then that part, dun, 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 working overtime, the velvet hand part, mm-hmm. and then it goes into the I need a fix because I'm going down. Right. Da, na, 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 na. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the gun, and then it goes into the like the doo-wop happiness i'm getting all these keys wrong is a warm gun bang bang shoot shoot so those are like the three different parts right and he had written down i should have written i should have written this down i'm not going to remember the exact thing but the first one he talked um he said like the dirty old man on his lyric sheet he wrote down like three different characters and no one knows what this means because they just have the sheet oh really (laughs) but he wrote like the dirty old man for the first part where he's talking with the girl and then the fix um he's he he talks about he's like the pusher or something like that and then or the the junkie mm-hmm. and then the last one he wrote i forget what he put but it was basically like sex drugs and rock and roll it actually fit that formula now i don't think that sex drugs and rock and roll was in his mind right um but it was this it was like these three kind of different vices Hmm. Um, and again, there were three different songs, so I don't know, I don't know what those notes meant. We don't know what those notes meant to him. <laughs> right. They might not have meant anything. Right. You know? Yeah. He could have just been passing time between takes, you know? So there was some kind of meeting. There's some kind of like through line that he had with that. I think Mother Superior is Yoko. Most things are Yoko in his songs at this point. They're really like falling in love at this point. 
Um, he called her, he often called her like mother. That was kind of his like affectionate, like nickname for her. Hmm. Which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little strange. He had lost his mother. We'll right, get into we'll that. We'll get to that. Yep. Yeah. We had yep. lost his mother yep. when he was young. Um, but this, um, yeah, Happiness is a Warm Gun, the the title came from, there was an American gun magazine that I think George Martin actually pointed out to him. They were, he was in the room with them and it, there was like an ad or it was the cover of the magazine that said, Happiness is a Warm Gun in Your Hand on the cover. And then there was a Peanuts cartoon that said, Happiness is a Warm Puppy about Snoopy, I guess. <laughs> really? Yeah. So like... The, those are both things that were kind of in. We know that he saw the warm the the gun ad. We don't know if he saw the peanuts strip. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it seems like it was kind of just in the air. It was like that kind of phrase. Happiness sure. is a warm blank, and so the, I found a couple of different places of he is interviewed and he's like, I thought that was cool. Like a, a warm gun means that you just shot something, <laughs> right? That's, that's, what, that's what I you thought know, too. Yeah. I was like, okay, and so. I don't know what it means. I do really like this song. Do you? Okay. Like yeah. I think it really I think it kind of rocks. I I my favorite thing about it I think is that it's and I'm going to I'm going to get super into the getting into the music nerd weeds. Yes, please. It's it's through composed meaning that it doesn't repeat any sections. So a lot of classical music we call it through composed. It means that it doesn't have like this a section verse, and then it, yeah, verse, exactly. Yeah. It just goes section to section to section, and that's the whole song. Hmm. Um, I really like that. It's kind. It kind of reminds me of like some of McCartney's later stuff, like Band on the Run, like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Is sure. a great example of that. So, so yeah, I've always kind of liked songs like that. It feels kind of more classical. It feels kind of out of the box. Stairway to Heaven is another one, of right? Course. It's like it goes section A, sec- section B. But I really, I think it's a great vocal performance. Um, That's true. You yes. know when he's going like, uh, "When I hold you in my arms," and uh, and then just that line, "Happiness is a warm gun." I think that's like John singing at his best. Yeah, I don't know. I really like it. Apparently, George, because George was studying Indian music pretty heavily at this point. Indian music has a lot of time signature and tempo shifts. It's just an, it's like a constant kind of ever present. Uh, element in their music. This is just always kind of switching up to these different times. And so George was able to kind of help when they recorded it to get them to kind of perform these different parts and all like start the different sections at these different tempos and feels. thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Uh, how it's like John's vision and George was able to kind of help him realize it. I just think that statement alone is, is very, very inspiring that he mm. was, he's a master musician, but he's still studying yeah, music. How wonderful! I heard actually, Flea had recently given an interview. Where I heard he went back to school. Yeah, and and graduated to, for music theory. Yeah, so this guy's a master. Yeah, player. I mean, yeah. and yeah, George never thought that he was always so. Like I said, he was so like self-effacing. He just never thought. Um, and I think that you could probably analyze George's work and see why that made him who he was. He always sure. was so kind of humble, and he. He always second guessed himself, and he always um, he wasn't trying to necessarily like grab the spotlight because he always mm. felt like other people had things to say, and they were probably more valuable than his stuff. And so, yeah, but but yeah, he he was 
clearly at, at this point this album he kind of picked up the guitar again i think part of him not wanting to play that guitar solo on guitar gently weeps is because he was playing primarily the sitar and the organ hmm. remember that beat uh, the hammond organ that he wrote uh blue jay way yes on like he that's kind of his favorite songwriting tool right now and so this album actually i found a few different people saying this that this was like his kind of returned to the guitar after he hadn't really been playing too much guitar over the last couple albums. Wow. He'd been way more sitar oriented. Very interesting. Yeah. Very but cool factoid. This, not surprisingly, was banned by the BBC. Uh, or a lot. I Need a Fix. Happiness is a Warm Gun. I Feel My Finger on Your Trigger. There's just a lot of euphemisms that could sure. just be taken a lot of ways. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's not surprising to me that uh, yeah, it was banned. If they're gonna ban a day in the life for saying "I'd love to turn you on," then they're gonna they're gonna ban this song. That's wild. <laughs> Can you imagine like now, like what you hear on? I know, yeah, in music, and this yeah. was banned. Megan the Stallion, right? And then yeah, you. <laughs> I'm sure BBC <laughs> plays that, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, so. side two out of four. Okay. Side two starts off with Martha, my dear. Martha, my dear which I'm sad to say I don't really have much to report on this one. It just felt like a mm. filler to me. Okay. And I was going to ask you if there's any significance to who Martha is. Yes, yeah. Martha is Paul's dog. Okay. I was really That's hoping. interesting. I had a kind of a fantasy that you're going to come here and be like, wow, this is clearly like this woman who means a lot to him. And, and like you were doing some of these other songs. And I was like, I hope Ian really reads in this one. And then I can tell him she, Martha is a sheepdog. is a two-year-old sheepdog belonging to Paul McCartney. Well, I am going to say just just put a pin in that dog okay. reference because okay. it'll come Great. back later I in can't this wait. album, actually. Um, this, well, in that case, I don't have a ton to say about it either. It started as Martha was his dog's name. I believe it's kind of about Linda, so who he'd... Uh, can take this time to tell you two things. One is this photographer named Linda Eastman, who would become Linda McCartney. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul had been dating Jane Asher, who I mentioned back on our first episodes. He'd been dating her for a long time. They had gotten engaged late in 67. And then once they got engaged, it felt like the magic was kind of gone. They both realized that they, they weren't going to end up together. And so they had broken off their engagement. And then around that same time, Paul had met... Linda, who is American, I think he met her in New York City, and they, over the course of this album, they are real, their their love is becoming like, she's his Yoko for sure. So okay. like, they would go on to make wings together, like <laughs> the band, they wouldn't just like make chicken yes, wings. Yes, right. Uh, but they- Buffalo style. <laughs> delicious <Wild> wings. wings. <laughs> uh, they married in 1969. Like, so- Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. They married the next year, and she has a daughter named Heather, I believe, and so they, she's always been kind of uh, Paul's stepdaughter, and so they've been, I believe, close ever since. Um, you'll meet them in that documentary, but um, he was falling hard for her, and she mm. was like his absolute soulmate, and it was mm. clear that he, all these other ladies he had been dating, you know, you can just tell like he wasn't committing to any of them until, and then Linda was, and she tragically. She passed away. Not, not. She didn't grow old with him, which is very sad. But they're, they're, yeah, they're getting hot and heavy. Yeah. And she is moving 
to London with her daughter at this point, like during the in the middle of the recording of this album. So this is a this is all Paul can think about really during these sessions is that she's moving, uh, he's in love. And there's and, a, song, a sig- song that I think is significant to this. That yes. we'll talk about later. Yes, there's a couple, but the point is all of his lyrics kind of on this album are kind of like with with John odds are it's about Yoko in this case it's about it's about Linda mm. um, so it seems like this song may be kind of about her but it started off with the dog he needed a name <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, it started off as like a piano exercise you can tell at the beginning it's this very kind of difficult piano thing that he's doing and it kind of reminds me of Sweet Child of Mine it's the same kind oh, of thing okay. Slash had this like do 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 uh, same kind of thing where he, he was working on, he kind of made up this exercise to test his skill and then they turned into the intro of a song. So it's the same kind of thing with here and then he probably needed a something, my dear, and so his dog's name was Martha and then the rest of the song just kind of came from that. I don't think it has a lot of significance. The, the other thing I wanted to take this opportunity to put a pin in is I mentioned as you were listening to listen to the 2018 mix. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that for a second. Normally this would... I'm kind of a purist when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I really, I normally don't like it when they go back and they open stuff up and they remix it or remaster or whatever. Like, I'm like, leave it alone. It's, it's what it is. Who cares? Like, yeah. yeah, Han shot first, George. Right. And we don't need to be putting Jabba the Hut and A New Hope and all no. that stuff, right? It or was the, Or those sand yeah. lizards or whatever. Exactly. The dewbacks. Thank do-backs, you, the dewbacks. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, I usually don't like that Distant stuff. Distant relatives of the Zumbacks. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. yeah, You, you have a, a spot in the Star Wars canon. That's right. But for some reason, I, uh, I think last year or so, I was listening to this album on a long drive up to New England from here in Nashville, and I loved this, this update. And if you've ever listened to the White Album the original mixes, they don't sound great. They're pretty... Did you listen to any of the original? I did. I listened okay, to the great. first six songs on the original. Okay. And then when I heard the 2018 one that you had me reference and I went back yes. and listened, I was like, oh, this is significantly different and better. Yes. And it's subtle. It's not like crazy different, but it's just so much better. It's clearer. There's so much more separation between the instruments. And it's because they were digitally able to kind of take things and put and place them in ways where they were so constrained by track count. And the reason I think that I'm okay with this or that I embrace it is because it feels like this is not only what the way that they wanted to hear it originally, but I think this is kind of how they heard it originally. Mm -hmm. Like when they were recording this stuff and playing it back in the studio, to them it sounded clean and as clean and as pristine as it could get for that time. But for us now, recording has come so far that it just sounds muffled and jumbled and and muddy. And so many of these songs just, they don't have the same kind of charm. And again, my all my like previous uh, memories from this album are from those original mixes that are muffled and, and a little whatever, you know, a, li- a little flat maybe. Sure. But... These 2018 mixes, I just, I think they sound incredible. And I think they just, again, I don't feel like they're adding anything to it. I think they're just taking away some of that kind of the artifice of the, of the limitations that they had at the time of, 
of recording. It does feel like they've remastered or like a like a an old film print, and they've been able to like maybe kind of restore it a little bit. Well, that that the part that stuck out to me was right right off the top in the back in USSR chorus, that guitar part. I didn't hear yes. that when I first listened to the first mix, and then probably because it was like in with the drums or the bass. They were all come through the same channel, right? Yeah, so you can't really. You can't affect any of those things on that channel without affecting, affecting everything the, else. Exactly. Yeah. So they were able to kind of actually treat those guitars the way that they clearly at the time were trying to do, but they only had sometimes four tracks. At this point, they were some of these songs are eight tracks. They were in the middle of graduating to, to eight. This song was recorded mostly in Abbey Road, and there were some in um, called Trident Studios in 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 London. And so, yes, some of these songs were recorded in different places, but j- just those two, those two studios. Um, I say all that to say this, Martha, my dear, I think sounds amazing. Hmm. And when I was first listening to this, this version of the album, this 2018 mix, I was just in the car. I think I was just listening on my, you know, sound system in the car, but these strings here, let me find a spot. Sure. Hey, future Joel chiming in here once again. Uh, I thought it might be fun to play you examples of both of these mixes to show you what I mean. One of the more notable differences is that the strings in the old mix were panned over to the left on the same side on the same track as the piano, whereas on the updated mix, uh, they are by themselves on the right side. So uh, first off, here's the original mix. Here's the 2018 mix. Martha, my love, don't forget me, Martha, my dear. Hold your head up, you and here's back girl. to the old mix. And I'd never heard those really in that mm. detail before, or they didn't really hit me the same way. But I think this this track is a great example of what that kind of updating and remixing can do. Yeah, the the, the strings, the orchestration, whoever performed the orchestra pieces in, yeah. in this album in general are some of the best I've ever heard on a, like, yeah. a live recording. I, I don't want to give away yeah. the very <laughs> last track on the album, but yeah. I mean, it just blew me away what I was hearing. Um, yeah. So all I'll say about this song, other than that, than those general album notes, is that I, I think the arrangement of this song is kind of breathtaking. I think mm. it is. It feels like kind of a trite song. It feels like maybe it's not really about much. But man, the way that the those different sections come in with the horns and the strings, it's just really, really. It's incredibly tastefully done. Yes. He's, there's a lot of things happening, and none of it feels out of place. Or it's so, like you said, it's well performed. Like none of it feels rushed, or like they needed another take. It just it's, seems very meticulous and very precise, as Freddie Mercury would say, meticulous and precise. But uh, I think it's incredible, just sonically. I love yes, this song. I agree. Yeah. So the next track is called "I'm So Tired," and yes. Um, well, much like Martha, to me, it, it 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 didn't feel like I really needed to yeah. read read into the to, to the lyrical content too much. Um, but the thought occurred. What really grabbed me was the approach to the verses and to the choruses. It reminded yeah. me of where maybe Bjork would have um, hmm. 
been inspired for it's oh so quiet like this is like very interesting yeah. like reverse dynamic where it's like really kind of relaxed in the in the verse and then dynamically lifts in the chorus um yeah uh, i think that the dynamics that are present in the song are really really what i responded to i was just like on a sonic level and their decision to play it the way yeah. that they do it, they did it i thought was very very um very interesting yeah, I think it's a cool recording. I, I'm thinking, I'm just having this thought now, but it reminds me of Weezer, mm. of Rivers Cuomo and his writing. This very kind of, very honest, but melodic, kind of angsty guitar mm. rock. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it feels like Pinkerton or the Blue, oh, Blue Album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the background of this song is John in Rishikesh, the TM, the meditation, was making it difficult for him to sleep at night, and so he was really tired during the day. And he was also really <laughs> missing cigarettes and alcohol. Okay. <laughs> Especially cigarettes. <laughs> and so he mentions that a couple times in the song <laughs> of, like, I want a cigarette. Oh, wow. Or I want to pour myself a drink. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, this is one of those songs where, like many of the songs on this album, they were on this meditation retreat, and this feels like it was... This one was just about John kind of turning all of the things that he wanted more sleep. He wanted a cigarette and he wanted alcohol. Hey. He didn't have any of those three things. And so he was just kind of bemoaning that. <laughs> so man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's, I do think it's a, here, let me. Yeah, let's play a little bit of yeah. this one. <laughs> this is a great song for a parent too, actually, like at all stages of parenting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> I love you, Jonah. I do like how the the chorus kind of comes out of nowhere. Yes, it does. But this part's great. Yeah, it is. This part. That's great. That that's, is great, actually. That's kind of classic Uh The Beatles' DNA and the White Stripes from that kind of song right there. Yes, yeah. Give you anything I got for a little peace of mind. That's just a like that. The the uh, building up to that. I love how it starts way down. You know how I like a slow burn. Yes. Uh, that starts out low and then gets up to that big like just that that uh, climax. I love that. And then comes right back down. Yes. Which I absolutely yeah. think is so great. Yeah. Um. Okay. It doesn't stand out though. It feels like again. What's funny about this album? Uh, we've said a couple times how there is such low lows and high highs. Mm -hmm. The songs in the middle do get lost a little bit they because wh why wouldn't they? Right. right? Yeah. Yep. You're absolutely right about that. Well, this next one is definitely not one that mm. will get lost in the, in no. the ether of this album. It does not get lost. Um, Blackbird, which is um, in terms of, I, I, I can understand why this is a fan favorite, first of all. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking it's a fan favorite. I know it's covered often. Yeah. Um, if I were teaching a songwriting 101, this would be a strong contender as an example mm. for how to write and compose um, a song that really allows listeners to enter. Mm. The story of a song provide relatable access to something that makes someone say, hey, that's my story when they hear it, right? Yeah, So it's open-ended. It's very open-ended, yeah. but the themes present, like the themes of destiny or seeing your moment, learning to rise above things, mm -hmm. all relatable themes for people that have been going through something. Um, this song, I think, is going to relate to so many people in so many different situations, and it could encourage a person going through whatever they're going through, but like, but, but like in a very, very large yeah. um, 
you know, it doesn't have to be specific to one thing. It could be like somebody lost their job, something extreme like that, or somebody's like trying to like, yeah, just decide what their college courses are going to be for the next semester, but yeah. are stressed out about it. You know, there's that much of a yeah of a of a wide open, um, open ended accessibility to the song. Yeah, um, it's not my favorite Beatles song, but I can see why it's it is to so many others. If that kind of makes sense, and I was actually really impressed with how not wordy a song it is. Like mm. when you look through the lyrics, yeah, there's not a lot of words to the song, but it says so much in so little words. Yeah, so that's why I would say this is like songwriting 101, like some of your best yeah. stuff that you could present mm-hmm. to somebody and say, "Hey, if you want to write us a, a really great song, yeah. listen to this song." This is another one like yesterday, where I don't think it came to him in a dream, but it feels like it all just kind of came out at came once. Right out. He kind of made this guitar part up and the words just kind of fell out. I've taught many guitar students this song. Mm-hmm. It's a really good way of kind of learning how to finger pick to learn these different techniques. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible song. I think, like you said, it's so, it, can, it is so open-ended, this idea of, of, you know, take these broken wings and learn to fly. There are these different, there's different very simple word pictures in it that really really hit you as you listen to it. It's about the civil rights movement. It's Oh, really? Yeah, about this Blackbird. And I believe it's specifically about black women. Um, at the, at the, so this was kind of written at the point in the 60s where a lot... I know, yeah, you're... Wow. Ian's shaking his head. Yeah. And so th- that's what it... That seems to be what he was writing about was uh, specifically what was going on in America, especially, you know, African-American civil rights. And that's amazing. Yeah. At what, yeah, these, these people, uh, were going through and kind of his, his message to them. Uh, but it is, I mean, you're right. It is completely universal. It is totally, um, yeah, it's so accessible and simple that it, it can be about anything. It's timeless. Really. Yeah. Totally timeless. I mean, you could, yeah, whatever that the movement could be, whether it's, yep. you know, whatever you're advocating for yeah this will be timeless and could be appropriated to any one of those yeah things yeah whoever is going through something unimaginable or someone who is rising from getting knocked down in any way or whose wings have been clipped whatever that means right that's mm-hmm. it's that's never going to go out of style and on top of that i think stylistically too it's timeless as it well, timeless, where it's yeah. like, if you didn't know this song, you wouldn't necessarily think this is 54 years old, right? Very true. Yeah. Um, there's a tapping sound. This is just a tiny bit of musical trivia. People have long said that you can hear the metronome in it, but uh, it's actually just Paul's foot. They put it like a microphone down and he's Your tapping foot. his foot. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> I love that. Oh, and it was uh, it was inspired by Bure and E minor. Um, Bach. So, um, like there's this kind of contrapuntal movement in there where like the bass move, the bass is moving up and the higher voice is moving down. What was that term again? Contrapuntal, uh, or counterpoint. Okay. Meaning that it's two lines that are moving either at the same time or in, or, um, in inverse relationship to each other. And so... It's a very popular, that's a very popular kind of classical guitar piece uh, for the same reason. And so uh, 
I think he was learning that or playing it, and you can totally see if you if you to learn the guitar and play it. It's very similar, kind of. It's in G, which is E minor. It's the same key. So uh, yeah, so it, it came from that. I think he was kind of fooling around. He was learning this classical piece and being like, oh, how can I move this around? Oh, I can do this. I can do this, mm. and that's how it kind of came out. That's really cool. It's pretty cool. I was having a conversation with a guy not too long ago who plays for um, a very well known. Um, well-known like bluegrass band, okay, highest level possible, and um, he was he was saying how like learning other people's songs sometimes can really just inspire, yeah, moments like mm-hmm. in your own personal songwriting. So yeah. I guess there's a little tip to songwriters out there: learn yeah. other people's music that you really are interested. Absolutely, in. that, I, uh, a surefire way to kickstart your creativity often is r- recognizing that you ripping someone else off is only going to sound that way to you. If you want to write a Tom Petty song, write a Tom Petty song and mm-hmm. no chances are almost no one else is going to hear it like that. <laughs> They're going to hear your voice there instead. Uh, that being said, if you feel like you're ripping off Tom Petty, don't. Yeah, don't do yeah. it. But if you can rip somebody off, Tom Petty's not well a bad person to rip Petty. off. Well, but the point is you, your own voice shines through mm-hmm. and I, you can't listen to this song and and think, oh, he was just he's ripping off Bach, <laughs> right? Right. You but you, you listen to this song. Oh, this is this is wholly new and original. But at the same time, it came directly from this other thing. So that's totally possible to do. And it's good to kind of free ourselves from that fear of being like, oh no, am I just doing what this other person did? Mm. So often the answer is no. The answer is no. You're doing your own thing. Like uh, other people aren't going to see it that way. Yeah. Great things to add there. Yeah, Joel. The next tune, Piggies. Piggies. This is a political song, right? Well, yeah. actually kind of sort of. I mean, it's, to, to me, I felt like it was like social commentary on class. And is, yeah. this, a, is this a George song? It is. It is, okay. You're right on both accounts. Okay, so. Both counts, Ian. So what I deduced from this is because George was so involved in Krishna religion, right? That mm-hmm. was his religion. So I know that Krishna has very strong beliefs against the caste system and region different regions of the world. Yeah. So caste is basically class. If, for people that don't know, it's class discrimination that's based on hereditary categories, basically. Yeah. You're born into poverty, you're going to stay in poverty kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does seem to target other countries, though, and like social disparities, yeah. um, I guess. So like it's not necessarily he's speaking about India directly. It seems like he's speaking about universally yeah class like it could be looked at as anti-consumerism hmm. as well like a lot of people th- would say it's either or both cast anti-cast and anti-consumerism basically meaning like at the end it talks about how the the piggies are sitting down to eat their bacon or right you know so it's which was the line i i, I noted in here that, yeah that was a clever way to describe their propensity to even be unkind to one another too, yes. right? Like yeah. you're just feeding on one another. Yeah, I kind of looked at it too as as saying like you're eating yourself and saying like uh, you're being fed this lie that you can climb out of whatever when you actually can't. You're you're actually you're just pulling other people down. You're you're perpetuating this this constant uh, this constant struggle of your class or your whatever your income bracket. Mm. Yeah. And it felt like George's Bob Dylan song. I don't know yeah. if they had like any kind of yeah uh, peer-to-peer relationship at this point, but 
They did. It's funny. Yeah, it's so different uh, stylistically. I mean, it it's is. like kind of Baroque almost, mm. uh, like a harpsichord right. and everything. Right. Like that's not Bob Dylan no, at all. But just the spirit <laughs> yeah, of it. You're totally way. right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very, it feels like a very kind of pointed social commentary like, like he would do. Right. And there's one line in it that made me chuckle. I had to like go yeah. back. He he refers to somebody getting a damn good whacking. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> such a British way of <laughs> yeah, talking about like a spanking or a beating or something. Yeah. You need a damn good whacking. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this is a great segue into the other bit that I have on this song, which is this is one of many tracks that was co-opted by Charles Manson. Ah, cheapers. Really? Uh, yeah, that line specifically. Um, so Charles Manson, he was looking at like the Bible through the, the lens of this album. And he thought all these numbers and messages were meant for him. And it led him, it's one of the things that led him to orchestrate these murders, mm. um, in 1969. Pigs was a euphemism for cops, cops over here. Right. And it wasn't really over there. And that's not what George was writing about at all. He's clearly stated that like that wasn't his, but the George Orwell, 1980 or, uh, animal farm mm-hmm. pigs are like the, are like the, the predatory and the, the police. It's, there are a lot of different ways that you can kind of interpret it, but yeah, one of several songs in this album that Manson, well, yeah, there's one in particular. There's one in particular that, but to this, your point, what you said with his interpretation, I actually note right. how off his interpretation is of but, this other tune, too. So this isn't as well known, but like uh, some of those murders, in they would write in blood on the walls, pigs, pigs or piggies. Right. And so it was almost the same as that other later song that we're oh, going to get to. Man. Yeah, so it's that's awful. that's less lighthearted than uh, the other parts of the song, but it's true. It, it's true. Like he, he had a real sick way of looking at this stuff and he would use you know with revolution nine he was like oh number nine oh it's uh revelation he went to revelation nine mm. and like he thought that that it was leading him there and he found some imagery in the bible that led him to this thing and he thought it was there's just a lot of a lot of stuff that he read into like crazy in this with this album that, that led to a lot of people dying so if, if only uh was it clint what's his name um uh, fictional hero oh, yeah. cliff booth if cliff booth <laughs> yeah he 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 could have given charlie manson a damn good whack exactly. and he deserved it <laughs> yeah yeah i think so he was certainly capable of it yep okay so the next song is hey I gotta dedicate this one to eddie's i back Actually, that's right been talking about it for three weeks here's to you ed yep. um and I feel so bad because he likes his song so much. Yeah. I got to just give a disclaimer that I'm sorry, Dad. Like, I know you love this song. Yeah. So I've been trying to be, like, kind about it when he brings it up. But yeah. I'm such not a fan of this yeah. song. Um, it's, it, I, like, the first thing, the first 30 seconds of the vocal style that eventually gets you to the melodic part of the song yeah, yeah, yeah. is so weird. It is right weird. off the bat. It's like like conversational. And all of a sudden it turns into this like melodic thing. And like what just it's happened? Like Paul it's, in like a American Southern accent. Right. Yeah. It's so strange. Yeah. Um so that was confusing to me. Um I did think that the reference to the Gideon's Bible was clever because it's only the second time I've ever heard it besides Clutch referencing the Gideon Bibles oh, yeah. in, in Prophets of Doom. <laughs> um, uh, it was very rhymey. 
Um, mm-hmm. The fact that it goes full saloon a couple times was, was an interesting production yep. choice. I that thought. piano is George Martin. Okay, the honky tonk. That's funny. Yeah. Why is his? It seems like all of his uh, his contributions, like like production wise, like his actual playing. Yeah, it it feels very over the top. Like yeah, like well, almost I think, yeah, campy almost. It is. I think that he was a classically trained musician, and so he was. If they needed something that was a very strong flavor, he had the facility with his his hands to to deliver that. Whereas the other guys were a little more kind of salt of the earth, maybe a little more kind of R and B simple mm-hmm. piano playing. Whereas George could George Martin could really like Overplay. could really play. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, whenever they wanted an effect, I think. But they're like, would, oh, we need a saloon t- piano. He would do that. Yeah. He's like, here for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need a we need a, a Baroque harpsichord. Here for it. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm I'm not trying to hate on the song. It just it's not my cup of tea. Yeah, I get it. I, I like the song. I agree that that first I always forget about that first part. The the that rambling Can you play it for a second? Yeah. Just just to give the audience a, a flavor. Young Rocky I always forget about that preamble. Gonna get that boy. So one day he walked into town, booked himself a room in the local saloon. Rocky Raccoon. Yeah, here's, here's the melodic part. Yeah, once it gets to that it's point, not it's not bad. It's a pretty good chorus. Find Gideon's Bible. Yep. I think it's also funny that he says. He had come equipped with a gun to shoot off the legs of his rival. Right. Like, how did he land on that phrase? Shoot off the legs? What kind of gun did he right. bring? Was he got a bazooka? <laughs> That's not how you take someone out. Right. Especially not at that point. Um, Unless and, it's a Quentin Tarantino yeah, movie. Yeah. Unless you're if Cliff you, Booth. Hey, that, let's uh, just say, if you want more Quentin Tarantino references, go to episode four of <laughs> My Forte. Yes. Let's forget about that. Uh, if you want more Quentin Tar- Tarantino references that our guest doesn't get... Right. <laughs> uh, go check out our interview with Stephanie Lambring. That's right. Um, I was going to say, uh, I think it is a really good chorus. Once it gets into it, it's just kind of this halftime thing. Mm-hmm. Only to find Gideon's Bible. I think it works. You're right, though, that it, it gets to this point where it's just, when it goes, where it is such a character thing that, you want to tell Paul, like, we get it, Paul. Like, yeah, we, you, so on you, the nose. Yeah, right. like, we get it. You like to do, like, whimsical kind of old-timey things. But I think that's one of Paul's kind of, I don't want to call it a failing because I think it's just who he is. I think it's just the music that he likes. And, again, it's tied to his dad. I think that's really sweet. But I do think one of, I think, Paul's great, I, I guess maybe I'll call it an oversight mm. again, time and time again is that, so few people are coming here for that. Mm-hmm. And the songs that got people here were She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yes. And they were just, they, they weren't those kind of songs. Right. And I don't have a problem when he puts uh, When I'm 64 on mm-hmm. a record. Yeah, or if great. he puts whatever, like... Obladi. Yeah, great exactly. Yeah. Like, But there are times where it just does feel like a lot. And John goes the other way where he he creates this very kind of depressing bare bones <laughs> stuff and it feels the same way where you're like we get it John like mm-hmm. but that's not what we came here for we mm-hmm. can't you know it's not like neither of you are writing things like that got you your audience now that's not to say that you can't develop 
right? But it, I think you have to recognize, especially when you're in a band where you have other people writing music, that like you are stretching. You are stretching what you're asking people to listen to. So that would be like the devil's advocate, I think. That's mm-hmm. my devil's advocate like view of it. That's, a, that's very insightful, actually. Of course, as a body of work, you have to look at the whole thing. We, we get Rocky Raccoon and we get Blackbird in the same album, right? Like... I'm okay with that. And on some level, me listening to Rocky Raccoon, I'm getting something out of it. But at the same time, yeah, it's it, it doesn't light my brain on fire the way that some of these other, these other things do. Um, Rocket Raccoon of Guardians of the Galaxy did was named after this song, I believe. Are you kidding? No. Oh, what a great character. Well, yeah. honestly, worth well, it. then it's worth it to me. If Rocket Raccoon... Was was created based on this song? Then yeah. I am actually um, <laughs> glad that Paul made this song because I think he's I think he is the best Guardian of the Galaxy. He's a great character. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, glad, I'm glad he's up in the up in the stars, watching <laughs> over all of us right. tonight, keeping us safe. Oh, I'm glad that now you know what uh, people are talking about when they keep talking about Rocky Raccoon. Yes. Oh, I was gonna say this is what I was gonna say earlier. Uh, I remember my dad, so before I had like maybe a couple Beatles albums and then we had that, this songbook and my dad, I have this distinct memory of my dad singing certain songs to me Okay. before I knew them. So I would hear some of these Beatles songs and I didn't have the album, but it would be my dad. He would just be like, he'd be like, and then it goes like this. And he'd be kind of telling me the story of the Beatles. And he would be doing this first part from Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> Way on the hills of South Dakota, boy named Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> and he would do that part. And I was like, that can't be it. <laughs> that's so There's great. no way that that's it. You know, okay, and then I wish I, we could get Mike to call in and like do that for us. <laughs> yeah, and then I and then I would hear the album. And I'm like, oh no, that's that's it. No, that's it. That's that's actually what it's, Paul put on the record. It's such a bad impersonation too. It's, know, it's so yeah. bad. It's cringy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But hey, I do I do get why it's a classic though. Mm. It it feels it's funny because I feel like John wrote Bungalow Bill and. Paul wrote Rocky Raccoon. As a response? <laughs> no, but no. They, they, they're on the same... They feel like such similar. They're all True. about guys with guns. Yeah, right. And they're both these kind of whimsical, playful, weird sing-along songs. Do you think John was like, mine's better, Paul? Like, or I'm, what? Well, I'm sure he was. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, actually, if I'm putting yeah, side-by-side side, Bungalow yeah, Bill. I'd rather Bungalow Bill than Rocky. a Rocky Raccoon. But yeah. you take away that first part, it gets closer. It gets closer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just that freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> the freestyle. <laughs> oh, Paul, don't uh, ever, don't ever try that, Paul. No, don't do it again. <laughs> All right. So next tune is "Don't Pass Me By." Classic. Is this Ringo? Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. I thought so. I was like, is this his only song on here? I, I th- think it might be. Yes no? and no. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, I want a reaction to it first. Okay, so I'm just going to read my note because I can't remember the song too much. Uh, so I'm just going to read what I wrote. I said... Sounds like this. Okay. Coming off the drive Listen for your footsteps but they Did he write this? He did. Okay. This is the first Ringo composition. And the last? Not no. the last. Okay. All right. Okay, so this is the point that I was listening that I'm starting to understand why this is a divisive album, I yeah. felt like. Because, um, 
like we were talking about the first part of the album, maybe the first eight songs, I think there's a lot of songs worthy of being on a standard LP. Yeah. But over like the past few songs, I'm starting to feel like it's like uninspired and just some of it's subpar, not memorable. I'm like, not everything's going to be awesome. Yeah. But this song was, um, yeah. It just didn't it just feel like it needed to be on the album. Actually. I agree. The, this song felt, it makes more sense when you realize that this is Ringo's first song. Mm. He actually, <laughs> it feels so bad saying this. <laughs> or laughing at this. Okay. It took him years to write this song. Oh. So he was writing this ouch. song and there's a there's a radio interview in 1964. Oh man. Where Ringo says, "Tell him about the song that I'm writing." Oh no. And Paul's like, "Yeah, he's not done with it yet." <laughs> and like, we're like, "We'll we'll sing it. You know, we'll sing it when you're done with it, Ringo." He, he's like, "He's never going to finish it." They're kind of like all joking about it. And like here we are 4 years later. And he finally finishes it, and they let him do it. And yeah, this is where it feels like you could have done two sides rather and than four, been, right? And you could have, you would have had the material to cut to make a uh, all killer, no filler. Man, yeah. Well, oh, I guess all it took was a little bit of TM to <laughs> I guess. get him to complete this song. I guess so. It's all Ringo and Paul, and then a violin player named Jack Fallon. <laughs> That's funny because John was probably like, "John was like, going on this crap." <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny? I don't know. Like, I feel like John would probably be more likely to do this kind of thing really? than to do like Obladi, you know? Right? Because uh, it was Ringo and it was it was chintzy, you know? Sure. It's kind of fun. Um, I thought this was going to be the song that you said was your least favorite. It's not. Um, I wrote. This is what I wrote in my notes. Good for him. Maybe the worst Beatles original. <laughs> I, I think this song is is kind of both the writing and and performance of it. I think his voice is double tracked and pretty out of tune. Mm -hmm. And more, that last part and uh, that is that's it's rough. It's rough. It's rough. But there's a quality to there it. Is. I did feel like. Because it was Ringo, I did keep that in mind as I was mm -hmm. listening to it. I was like, he's doing the best he can with what yeah. he's got. I don't know if it's the best he can. He's saying well, that's true. He's he did sing a lot of good songs. That's true. You know, he's done with help helping for my friends, Yellow Submarine. But it seems like he's getting into the drugs more at this point in time too. So maybe at least I mean, I, I'm I sure I maybe, mean, but I don't I I would not jump to that. I would say they just didn't need to put this on the album. Yeah. I think no, they didn't. it's the kind of thing. Also, remember I was saying how like there is a, cohes a cohesiveness to this album, even though it's kind of meta. This one feels more Sgt. Pepper's Magical Mystery Tour. It mm. feels more carnival and psychedelic. Oh, yeah, sure. And these other songs are a little more bare bones or kind of intense. This doesn't feel that way. This feels like... It belongs in one of those other recordings. I could see that. And I think that's one of the things that makes me not love it. I get the charm. I get the charm. I just don't... I, I think it's not a good song. Mm. Also, if you listen to the lyrics... I'm going to pull up the lyrics. Okay. Ready? Yes. I'm, I'm just going to read these lyrics because... <laughs> I'm sorry, Ringo. You you were the conductor on Shining Time Station, and I owe you so much. He was? What a yeah, great you don't know that? gig. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he was the first one. First season. He was the conductor. He was the little the little guy. I love that. So and he's done some great. He has a great song on Abbey Road that I think is is probably it's 
It's way better than this, and he's done so much since. So you get credit for that. But the, listen to the story that he's telling, because this is it's hard to pick up from listening to the song. Sure. I listen to your footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. Waiting for your knock, dear, on my old front door. I don't hear it. Does it mean you don't love me anymore? So he's waiting for his baby, right? Yes. Second verse is exactly the same message. I hear the clock a ticking on the mantel shelf. See the hands a moving, but I'm by myself. I wonder where you are tonight and why I'm by myself. He rhymed by myself with by myself. (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. That's a cardinal sin in Nashville. And then he wrote, I don't see you doesn't mean that you don't love me anymore, which rhymes with nothing. Like the first one, the first (laughs) verse he rhymed anymore with door. Right, door. right, right. This one he rhymes "love me anymore" with "by myself," which he rhymed with "by myself" already. Right, right. So, just saying, I'm just throwing it out there. Yep. The chorus is "Don't pass me by, don't make me cry, don't make me blue," because you know, darling, I love only you. You never know what hurts. You never, you'll never know what hurt me so. Now I hate to see you go. Don't pass me by, don't make me cry. That sounds totally fine. That is a country song. That if Hank Williams wrote that, great. Mm-hmm. But here's verse three, Ian. Oh, we got we got three verses. I don't here's know the third verse. verse. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. Oh, how how in the hell does that happen? Like the car exploded? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. You said that you you would be late about an hour or two. I said that's all right. I'm waiting here, just waiting to hear from you. <laughs> Why? Chorus. Go to chorus. the hospital, Ringo. <laughs> what the baby. hell? Right. What's going on? Okay. So, Ian, it took him four years to finish this four thing, years. and now he's he's finally like, I finished a song, guys. Right, guys. Oh, I lost my hair. That's you were in a car crash and you lost your hair. That is a plot twist that I wouldn't even see coming in a like a like the worst movie. He rhymed by myself with by myself, and then with that second by myself, he rhymed love me anymore. Boy, oh, I feel like we need to say <laughs> if Ringo ever hears this, we do love you, Ringo. Ringo, you're a great drummer, <laughs> you are, and you're a great. Conductor on Shine. I mean, that was my one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. And you seem like a steady Eddie. Seem like a great guy. Yes. Uh, maybe the best. Maybe the maybe the most the the best friend out of all the Beatles. Yes. You know. Uh, but and but yeah. he just performed with the Avett Brothers. So there's big points there too. Oh yeah, yeah. You um, showed me that. Yeah. But the song. Yeah. I, maybe I, maybe you could if you ever hear this. Could you please let us know how you came to the point of yeah. talking about I your think girlfriend's it was a- hair was gone after this car crash. And if that's a true story, like, I don't, that doesn't make it any It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I think, yeah, it doesn't make it any better if it's a true story. And I feel like it's maybe a sunk cost thing at that point where he's like, well, I've been working on it for four years. It must be good. Or like I can't can't give up on it now, I don't know. But yeah, I think that that's one of my because Dizzy Miss Lizzie was not an original; it was right. a cover. So I'm like, I think this is me. I don't know if it's worse than that song, but I'm like, as far as Beatles originals. Well, in in terms of hot potato, of being the worst, mm-hmm. in my opinion, the worst Ooh. Beatles song so far. It's it's um, it's followed 
by, in my opinion, the worst Beatles song. You're hold on. You're saying that the worst Beatles song you've heard so far is "Why Don't We Do It in the Road"? Yes. Mm-hmm. 